1: Welcome to the program. It's the Tuesday edition of the Word to Stand on for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Delighted that you call, and we'd love to have your calls and questions. That's what this program is all about. If you have a question about what we believe as Christians or why we believe it, if you have a situation going on in your life, you want to know how to deal with biblically, we'll do the best that we can. Here are your phone numbers, 340 9585 that's 340-9585. If you're outside the local calling area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-5757. That's 630-KSLR. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call us use the KSLR free mobile app. Uh, just hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340 There's nothing going on on Tuesday, so we can go right to the questions. Let's go to Daniel calling from San Antonio on line one. Daniel, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
2: Hey, Pastor Ron. I just thought I'd hit your brain today. Um, something, that, you know, over the years has been puzzling me, and I don't know, I don't know, it, it, you know, um, you know, I know Jesus said, you have to be born again to enter God's kingdom, right? And you have to be born again to see God's kingdom. Um, and then he says, you know, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Um, and, you know, for many years, when I first became a Christian, I didn't know I was born again, because I didn't know anything about the Bible. I just knew that for the first time in my life, I had a like a genuine desire to read God's word, to go to church, to mm-hmm actually pray you know and and the things of god didn't seem foolish to me like they did at once Mm -hmm. and it's something that i can't say that i adopted it it was just something that natural it just it's almost like it was like an instant uh you know like it was in me you know what i mean and and it's never left me all these years for you know, 20 years now. It it has never left me that desire uh, daily. and It's never left me. But I've always, like, tried to explain to people, like, how it happened. And I think, you know, and and I was thinking, like, well, how is one born again? I mean, I know all I did was put my faith in Jesus, and it happened. But I don't, like, I kept thinking that there was a process. And then just the other day, it just dawned on me that that it it was just it. There was nothing that I had to do with it. Other than to put my faith in Jesus and God's Spirit did it, and I can't, you know, I don't know how He did it, but I just know it was through faith. But I guess in itself, I was like, you know what, that was a miracle, you know. But I don't, I mean, I don't know if I got all the answers now to it, but I'm like, you know what, let me ask Pastor Ron and see what his take on it is, and you know, that way when I'm, you know, because somebody asked me that the other day, and I'm like, well, you have to be born again. I was thinking, like, what exactly is in that in total? I don't know if I know the whole answer.
1: No. Yeah, I can help you, Daniel. Thank you. That's a, that's a great okay. experience. Because what you've just described is a perfect example of what it means to be born again. You see, when we're born again, we're born again by faith. Ephesians says that we're saved by grace, God's unmerited favor, through faith... And that not of ourselves, in other words, we can't work that faith up, it is a gift from God. So God gives us the ability to believe. We say yes to the invitation of the Holy Spirit, and then we ask Jesus into our heart, and we're born again. Now, you don't have to say the words, Jesus, come into my heart, but what what happens in the born-again experience is that we're set free the moment we ask for forgiveness of our sins. We recognize that we're living a life that's apart from God. We don't want to live apart from God anymore, and somehow we communicate that. It doesn't have to be the same script or the same words, Daniel, but but it's the same thing that happens. And the, the, the instantaneous uh, transformation, uh, the things of God were no longer foolish to me like they once were. Uh, I had a hunger for God's Word. Uh, Daniel, that's what happens when the old Daniel dies and a new Daniel is born again. You know, when Jesus says, uh, flesh gives birth to flesh. He's talking about the natural birth. When he says, um, "Spirit gives birth to spirit," there's a whole new you that's born again, born once in the flesh, born by water, born twice by the Spirit, and then we become new. And the the, the experiences change with every person mine was a little more dramatic than yours in the sense that my life was really desperate and i was running away from home and and um um, jesus basically tackled me and i i don't mean in a physical sense but but i literally fell on my face on a public street and jesus was there to pick me up and i got up transformed but i knew i'd given my life to him i called out for him In your case, Daniel, it was less dramatic, but was every bit as effective. The new Daniel was born because the old Daniel passed away. And that's precisely what being born again means. So uh, when somebody tells you you have to be born again, you say, well, yeah, I was, because that's what happened. Sometimes I think we put too much value on these um, extravagant testimonies. Um, The Apostle Paul had one of those great testimonies, uh, but not everybody did. Not everybody did. You don't read about John's born-again experience. You don't read about Peter's born-again experience. What you read about is Jesus filled them with the Spirit. And when you said that it wasn't anything you did, it's not anything you can do. Salvation is a gift from God, and we can't earn it, nor can we do anything to deserve it. But we can, Daniel, we can receive it. And if we understand that, then we understand the relationship that we have with the God who saves us. So, make no mistake, Jesus said nobody can come to heaven except he or she be born again. But you're born again by the Spirit. And it's nothing that you can point to and say, well, I did this, or I got better, I worked harder, I studied more. No, the things that... Changed in you will result, Daniel, of a completely new you being born. So that's what it means to be born again. And God bless you for sharing the testimony. I think so many times people do guilt because they can't remember the exact day or the exact hour. Uh, Some of us can. I can because my life was such a mess. I said that earlier. But others, it just happens so naturally. And since then, you've been walking with Jesus. You've still got the hunger to read his word. And that's what really, really matters. So, Daniel, great, great story. And thank you for the ability to kind of clarify that with some, because I know there are people that really struggle with that. Here is a question from Debbie. She says, Hi, Pastor Ron. I was thinking about our rapture. I understand the parable about the 12 brides. It's actually 10. But what of us who still struggle with our own faults? I know we can't be perfect without Jesus. When we're raptured, will we be perfect as we ascend him in the clouds? Well, the first thing, Debbie, is that that we will be perfect as we ascend him in the clouds. And it won't be a slow ascension. In an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be with him. Those of us who are still alive will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord, and we will be with him forever. That's what Paul writes. Um, We can't be perfect at all in this life, in this body. So when you say, I know we can't be perfect without Jesus, we're perfect positionally, Debbie, in the sense that we've been taken positionally. We're still here on earth, and as Daniel's call indicated, We're born again, so we're new people, but there's still this sin nature that lives in us that we have to battle. And nobody's going to be perfect until that moment when we're with Him, and then we will be perfect, perfect, perfect. But until then, we have positional perfection. Jesus sees us as beautiful without flaw, but we know the truth. The truth is that we struggle. Paul's testimony in Romans chapter 7, what I want to do, I can't do, what I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. He says that this messenger of Satan later was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited because of his surpassingly great revelation. So we all struggle with the sin nature. And that won't change until we're with Jesus. So the rapture is going to take care of all that. Now, we don't know, Debbie, when the rapture is going to happen. I hope it happens soon. I wish it would happen before this radio program was off the air. But Jesus is chosen in his patience to tarry. And when he comes, we have to be ready. So whether we meet him the natural way, by dying and going to heaven to be with Jesus, or whether we meet him in the air because of the rapture, the moment we see him, John writes, Paul writes, we will be as he is, we'll be perfect. I want you to think for a minute about Peter and John. They saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And John would long for that moment when one day we will be just like him. Our lowly bodies will be like his glorified body. So we will all be perfect that way. Now, one of the things I want you to understand is that the parable of the ten brides, or it's actually the ten virgins, bridesmaids, uh, has nothing to do with the rapture of the church nothing at all. It's a parable to communicate readiness. It's a parable to communicate that we always need to be with Jesus, that we need to be ready for whatever happens, because we don't know the time of the wedding. And the the parable of the ten bridesmaids, the ten virgins, was simply a, a parable that would indicate that Jesus doesn't know, um, um, or we don't know the time of his coming, but we always have to be ready, just as in a Jewish culture, um, the the bride and the groom didn't know the time of the wedding. That was up to the father. And the father would inspect the house that had been built and constructed, and he would pick and pick, and and and, and well, it's not quite ready, it's not quite perfect. Then one day he would pick it and say, go get your bride, and that's when in a Jewish culture, the, the party would begin. So, the ten virgins has nothing to do with the rapture, but keep thinking about the rapture, Debbie, because if you keep thinking about the rapture, you'll be ready when Jesus comes. So when we're raptured, yes, we will be with him. We will be as he is and we will be with him forever. So I pray that helps. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Carlos from the Northeast side. He said, hi, Pastor Ron, this is Carlos from the Northeast side again. It's been a while since I've communicated with you, and I hope everything is going good for you. It is, Carlos. Thank you. Then he says, I just have a quick Bible question. I'm trying to find out how I can speak to Jesus and ask him for peace of mind. In today's fast world, I tend to feel very anxious about everything in my life. For example, my job, helping my wife and daughter, going back to the university for a master's degree, and general life stresses. I came across an Asian lady at my work the other day, and she asked me to say buddhism a chant that may help to calm me down but me being a christian i really don't feel right doing that i guess what i'm trying to say is that i do not know how to talk to jesus and god about my problems or how to ask them to make me a more peaceful person i do not feel content with life at times and i guess i have a fear of asking them meaning jesus and god I know it may sound confusing, but I really could use some advice on how to ask Jesus and God for help. Thanks for always answering through your radio show. Carlos, this is really, really an important question, and I read it all with no edits because so many people in this life who are born-again Christians uh, are are dealing with the same stresses in life uh, that you are. The the pace of our world is so overwhelmingly fast that, that we just get lost in all of the noise and all of the busyness. So two things, more than two things, but but the first thing is make sure, Carlos, that all the busyness in your life is from him and not of your own. You know, one of the things that I do regularly is I open my hands before the Lord. I'm a visual person, so for me, these are the kind of things that, that, that help me really seek the Lord, but I'll open my hands, just palms up, open my hands and say, Jesus, you know, everything that's in these hands but I want you to take everything out that's not of you. You see, Carlos, we have a tendency to do what we want or or we do what we think we have to do to make other people happy. And I want my life to be so simple. I want it to be slow enough that I can say, Jesus, none of this stuff belongs to me, so whatever is from you, you leave in my hands, take everything else out. And in that process of talking to the Lord, then he will, if... I've got some stuff that he isn't a part of, then then the Lord will put his finger on those things. So make sure that all of the things you're stressed about, all of the things you're stressed about, make sure that you're not taking on those responsibilities on your own. It's really, really hard having a job, having a wife and daughter, and going to get a master's degree. That's a lot of stress. Just make sure you're in the will of God. Now, now, in terms of the, the, the Asian lady with the Buddhism chant, um, no, Christians don't do that, but, but what troubles me a little bit here, Carlos, is it would indicate that you're sharing all of your stresses with her, when in fact, the only person to share your stresses with is Jesus. He said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I think sometimes, Carlos, the relief from stress doesn't come because we're asking other people to relieve our stress. We're asking other people for answers or for advice. And Jesus has come to me, just to me. So don't do the Buddhism chant, but at the same time, cast your cares on him, Peter says, because he cares for you. So let him be your sounding board. Let him be the one. Don't feel guilty because you're stressed. Don't feel guilty because you're not content sometimes. That's a common human condition. But what you do in those times is you confess, Jesus, my faith is weak. Please help me. I'm stressed out about all these things that you've got under control. Please help me to trust you a little bit longer. Tell him you're sorry. He'll forgive you. He'll fill you with his presence all over again, and you'll be with him. Now, this is the most important thing I'm going to say. You're always going to be stressed out unless you're with Jesus. Don't worry about talking to Jesus and God. Jesus is God. So you can talk to the Father in the name of Jesus, but Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to us. The Holy Spirit who lives in you, Carlos testifies of Jesus. So, Jesus is the way that we can communicate with God. Because He is God, believe me, there's no conflict of interest in the Trinity, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are saying, hey, why aren't you talking to me? Jesus is the way God was revealed to us. That's why the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus. So just talk to Jesus like he's your friend. You talked to an Asian lady at your work the other days. Don't talk to her. Talk to Jesus. He's your friend. John 17 says he calls you friends. It's an amazing thing to consider. Our friend is the one that we ignore most of the time. So be with him. And only Jesus, by his spirit, can make you more at peace. And you need not ever have any fear of talking to God. Because God's a man whose name is Jesus. He happens to be God as well. But he's the one who understands. He's the one who dealt with stresses of human life. And he will give you the peace that passes understanding in these times. What it sounds like to me, Carlos, is that you're just taking way too much on you. Like you're trying to perform a little bit for God. Like you're trying to do everything perfect. It sounds like you're way too hard on yourself. If things aren't perfect, things aren't going to be perfect, but Jesus is, so don't be afraid to talk to him. Just talk to him like you talk to any other human being. He's invisible. I understand you can't see him physically, but make no mistake, he's right there with you every minute of every day. And when you go talk to other people about the things that you're stressed about, even if it's your wife and daughter, when you talk about those things to to other people, Jesus is saying, hey, 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 I'm here. And all you have to do is remember that he's the one that gets you. He's the one that understands what you're going through. So talk to him like he's your friend. That's how you talk to Jesus. And you can just talk to him about your problems. But before you bring up your problems, now, Carlos, I think this is something that every one of us as Christians deal with, uh, and I think we struggle with. I think sometimes the first words out of our mouth are, Jesus, help. Jesus, I got this problem and that problem. How about starting out the morning simply by saying good morning to him? How about walking throughout the day with him and being grateful for what he's done? Carlos, you could, just as an example, I'm using just the content in your letter. You could say, Jesus, thank you for my job. Thank you for my wife and for my daughter. Thank you for the opportunity to go earn a master's degree. You've done all of this for me, Lord, because you love me. And How about just focusing for just a few minutes on what he's done for you As opposed to focusing on the things you're stressed out about. The Apostle Paul says that with thanksgiving we are to make our requests known to God. With thanksgiving, that means with a grateful heart. And Carlos, if we're stressed out all the time, if all we're doing is begging God to help us, it doesn't sound like our hearts are grateful. So focus on what Jesus has done for you. As you do that you're going to find talking to him a whole lot easier a whole lot easier one final thought the word the word the word the word you've got to dig into your Bible Carlos you're not going to know him unless you study who he is unless you believe every word that he's written to us. There's no shortcut. You got to know the one who loves you, the one who saved you. And if you focus on that, I promise you everything will change because you'll be able to trust him more. You'll learn more about the height and width and depth and breadth of his love for you. So Carlos, your question doesn't sound confusing at all. It's just unnecessary. Remember Matthew eleven twenty eight, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much, Carlos. I'll be praying for you. Three four We're inside, uh, just approaching three minutes left in this half of the program. We would love your live calls and questions. Let me see if I have a quick question. Here's a question from Ted. Are Christians still under the Old Testament law? Ted, Christians were never under the Old Testament law. Paul writes to the Colossian church in chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code, that's Colossians two verse fourteen, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So Christians have never been under law and forever. Carlos, I'm sorry for her, ever, uh, Ted. Um, Christians um, are trying to put people back under the law, so they're not under the law. We never were; it was never intended to be. We have been freed from the curse of the law. The curse of the law was that it wouldn't accomplish the purpose of God. The law only pointed to our guilt. Grace. That's the new covenant that we're under. Grace takes away that guilt. So no, we're not under the Old Testament law, not in any fashion or form. Now having said that, with the last minute that I have in this half of the program, um, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. But instead of a have to, they're a get to. Instead of a do this and I will bless you, uh, those nine of the Ten Commandments, are written for us or repeated for us in the New Testament to tell us how to respond to grace. So we don't approach God because we do things. We do things because of what God has done for us. That's a response to grace. And that's just pursuing holiness. That's just living godly lives. So, Ted, I hope that makes some sense to you. Uh, Don't let anybody put you under the law. Jesus declared all foods clean, and still people say, no, we can't eat pork, or we can't eat shellfish, or we can't eat these things, because the law says, no. Jesus changed in the New Covenant, declaring all foods clean. So that's what we've got to understand, uh, Ted, and if we don't understand that, then we've got some, some struggles. And believe me, trying to be under the law, or having somebody put you under... Uh, the law or legalism will destroy any fruit coming from your Christian walk it will make following Jesus miserable because you'll just be striving in all of your strength and remember the Bible says we don't have any strength and you're just going to fail hey three four we'd love to have your calls in the second half of the program Three four zero ninety five eighty five or 877-630-KSLR we'll be back in two minutes
0: To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
1: Welcome back to the second half of the program. We've got 30 minutes left for your live calls at 340-9585. Here is a question from AA. He says, John 2 tells us about Jesus' first miracle turn water into wine into a Jewish wedding. I've heard that ancient Jewish weddings typically lasted a week. I can't imagine what they did during all those days. Feast, sing, play games, tell stories, and drink. Now, before I even go on the question, let me explain to you uh, the the Jewish wedding festival. It wasn't a -a 24-hour-a-day, 7-day process. They would get up, they would go home, they would change clothes, they would eat, so uh, it's just that there, there there would be times of feasting for seven days, and you're right. There were some feasts um, um, that, that they lasted a week. It just wasn't a continuous time. If anybody wants information on Jewish customs during the time of Jesus, there's a great book written by Alfred Edersheim. Two of them actually. One of them is a book that I, I don't know how anybody can study the Gospels without having it's the life and times of the messiah um uh, by alfred edersheim uh but there's another one called um customs and traditions um of jews during jesus's time uh, customs and traditions of the jews and it's also written by alfred edersheim because he's been dead a long time there's a lot of of uh, it's a lot of information you can find it online for free It's very difficult reading, by the way. Um, He says, if the steward of the banquet did not want to risk embarrassment, he'd have to stockpile sufficient wine for the guests for the entire duration. Uh, My understanding of the Greek word wine served at the wedding feast is that it was alcoholic in nature, not grape juice. You are absolutely right about that. In order to do that, he'd have to guess how much each guest would consume daily in order to have enough on hand. Jesus and his disciples would have been counted in this calculation as they were invited. Now, a couple of words about the, the alcohol. While it was alcohol, it was, uh, it was fermented wine. It wasn't grape juice in spite of what people like to think because they're predisposed to condemn anything to do with alcohol. Um, but it wasn't nearly as potent as the, the, the alcohol that we serve today. Uh, So the alcoholic content would have been less. It was a staple. Remember, even Paul tells Timothy to drink wine uh, because the water back then was bad. So he drank wine for your stomach to settle your stomach. So it was used for all kinds of reasons, medicinal purposes, um, uh, as well as just for for, um, leisure, for enjoyment. So here are his three questions. If Jesus and his disciples participated during the entire week, would they have consumed as much wine as the others to fit in? Believe me, a Jesus wasn't concerned about fitting in with anybody. So the answer to the question would have been no. Would he have had wine? Would they have had wine? Almost certainly they would have had a glass of wine. But uh, believe me, there was no possibility that they could have been inebriated in, in the slightest. So they wouldn't have tried to fit in. His second question is, if Jesus and his disciples didn't drink like the others, does that mean the other guests consumed the excess portions, thereby creating the shortage? I think most likely, A, the shortage was created simply by uh, underestimating the need. That's one of the reasons it would have been so embarrassing and one of the reasons Mary said, A, they've run out of wine. Um, do what he tells you to do. Uh, and And why he did it um, do we third question is do we presume Jesus consumed water or non fermented grape juice and not fermented wine? No, everybody that would have drank the wine then would have have uh, been drinking um, wine that was alcoholic in content it was fermented to be sure thank you aa a three four zero ninety five eighty five Here's a question from Kenneth. It always disturbs me when I get this question and I get it with some frequency. Can someone be a believer and reject the Bible as the Word of God? Before I answer the question, uh, not knowing your motive, Kenneth, why would anybody conceivably want to reject the Word of God who is a believer? You have to think about that. Is it is to it find a loophole because the Bible tells you something that you're doing is wrong or something that you're not doing you should be doing. So to reject the Bible as the word of God always has a motive behind it. Now, as to the question specifically, can someone be a believer and reject the word of the Bible as the Word of God? I don't think so. Now someone can be a believer and not know the Word of God or not know anything about the Word of God. I was one such believer. I gave my heart to Jesus. I was born again. But but because I was born again and Jesus came to live in me in the person of the Holy Spirit, just like Daniel's call at the beginning of the program, we both had this insatiable desire to read the Word, to read the Bible. That's something that's done because the Spirit of God lives in us. But for someone to claim to be a Christian and reject the Word of God, and they use the word reject, I think, purposely, would indicate that they're really not a believer at all. Now, we know there are a whole bunch of people that reject the Word of God who claim to be Christians, but the truth is, to reject the Word of God, it's one thing not to understand it, not to know it yet, you're a brand-new believer, but to open the Bible as a believer and say, I reject that, I reject that, I reject that, indicates that there's no witness of the Spirit that the Bible is written by the Holy Spirit. And that would point that person out as an unbeliever. So I think because of your use of the word reject, the answer to your question is no. Again, we cannot understand the Bible. We can have no relationship with the Bible. Uh, As brand new believers, that describes most of us. But to reject it is a clear implication that we don't want anything to do with God. So Kenneth, I hope that answers your question. Let's go to Harold calling on line one. Harold, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
0: Sure. Hi, Pastor Ron. Yes, I have a question. Hi, Harold. Uh, hi. and um, being under the law with all these food things and the shellfish and whatever people ate in ancient times, and when Jesus Christ was here was also ancient times. What changed in the animal? What what changed? You know, say you as an example, you can eat. You can eat shellfish under the law, but now since Jesus came and fulfilled the law, you you can eat it. So what changed? I, you know, I just kind of wondering what's, what's going on back there, back then, with the animals are the same. I, you know, you understand what I'm trying to say? You know, the animals are the same from one day to the next. Yeah, so yeah I, just, I,
1: I do understand.
0: understand. Okay, I, I listen on I the think... air.
1: Thank you, Harold. I appreciate the question. I think um, uh, the answer has to begin with understanding the purpose of the law. God gave the law to Israel not to not to Christians. He gave the law to Israel, and He gave the law to Israel to set them apart from the pagan peoples around them. They lived under a different code. they lived with different um, rules for morality, uh, even dietary laws you know there were there were no emergency medical care facilities then God, no doubt, prohibited food from his people, Israel, that were, was going to be bad for them, food that would cause diseases and food that would cause uh, other kinds of... There's no refrigeration or anything else. So there was some uh, food that was declared unclean. In other words, though other people eat it, you're my people, Israel, you can't... Now, you remember when Peter was on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner, and he had this vision of a, of a sheet... Uh, being held by angels coming down to sing on the earth with all kinds of unclean food and it, uh, unclean animals. And, and the Lord's voice said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. So, uh, again, the purpose for declaring some foods unclean was to protect Israel. It was good for them. Now, we know that there are some of those foods that we eat that still cause problems pork, if you don't cook it completely, causes all kinds of issues. So we're talking not just health issues, but also identification uh, and separation issues from the people around them. So nothing changed in the animals. We can still cook a, a, a pork today. If you don't do it right, people are still going to get sick. Uh, people that choose not to eat pork don't have to deal with that kind of a, of a problem. So here's what he's doing. He's saying that I've got you now. In the New Testament, he's changing the law. Don't call anything unclean that I have declared clean. Um, But for the, he's just saying it's okay to enjoy. So it's just more freedom. Now in the New Testament, Harold, the difference in us from the people around us comes from within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So the, the food, there's still food, some foods that are healthier than others. Um, you know, I have a... Excuse me, I have a um, um, allergy to... I, I don't know if allergy is the right word, but, but shellfish, as much as I love some of it, shellfish I don't do well with. I'm free to eat it, but personally I, I, I mostly don't. Uh, simply because I, I don't do well with it, but it's okay. So I think it's sort of a under grace. We go back to the beginning. He gave God, God gave Adam and Eve everything to enjoy. Well, now he's saying no, we can enjoy that. And Harold, I hope this isn't too flippant for you, but every time I eat a piece of bacon, I'm so grateful. God said it was okay. I'm so grateful that we have that freedom. I think bacon is the best thing on this planet to eat. So yes, God made the change. He didn't change the animals. He changed the rules, and He did it that we might enjoy. So I hope, Harold, that makes a little bit of sense to you. Three four zero ninety is a question from Daniel. Is it okay for Christians to be gay? You know, one of the things, Daniel, about this question, and I I used to get this question occasionally. We've been doing this program for five years, and uh, I used to get this question occasionally. Uh, now I get it multiple times per month, and there are times when we'll get the question sent to us, and, and I just won't respond because I talked about it yesterday or the day before or something like that. Um, but it just gives you an idea about how fast and how much things are changing in our world. If you mean, can a Christian have same-gender attraction and be saved, the answer is yes. But if you mean, is it okay for a person who professes Christ to indulge in that same gender attraction and have an open sexual relationship with someone of the same gender, the answer is no, never, not ever. And there's so much pushback to this. You know, five years ago, nobody would have thought of of, of pushing back against an answer like that. But now it's, oh no, God's changed the rules, God's love, He wants me to be happy. Uh, they, they've, they've, the proponents of, of gay lifestyles uh, have, have completely, uh, those who claim to be Christian, have completely reinterpreted the Scriptures to allow them to do, to justify what they want to do. But you can't do it. In the same way, Daniel, and I always say this because I don't want to be accused of, of picking on people who are gay. In the same way, if this question said, is it okay for Christians, if they are monogamous, to have sex with they're not married? Men and women, the answer is no. Never, never, never. And yet we do it. Now, the problem is we are much more vocal often about homosexuality than we are about sexual immorality between um, um, heterosexual sex activity. And what we've got to do is understand the Bible says all sin separates from God. There's nothing that is worse about gay sex than there is about uh, immoral sex between heterosexuals. You know, we have people living together who aren't married who call themselves Christians. And my response when they let me know is, well, why do you think you're a Christian? God says you can't do this. And for a lot of people, that's just unthinkable. Well, God wants me to be happy and we love each other, so it's got to be okay. We're married in God's eyes. No, you're not. So just as that's not okay, it's not okay for Christians to be sexually active in a homosexual relationship, period. Period. And Daniel, again, this question keeps coming up. This is the question I say to you, almost every time I get it, this is the, the issue that is going to define the true church as opposed to the apostate church. This is the issue that the enemy is using. The enemy is using to try to destroy the church of Jesus Christ and, and, and preclude any possibility of our church having power. Is that something that we've got to be able to deal with we have to make choices are we going to believe God or are we going to believe his word or are we going to be the people that try to find loopholes and reinterpret scripture to allow us to commit the sin we want to commit like it's no big deal it's very important that we make that choice let's go to line one and talk with Joe calling from San Antonio Joe thanks for calling you're on the air
3: hi Papa Ron <clears throat>
1: hi Joe how are you
3: you doing?
1: Doing well, thank you.
3: Okay, um I my question I know you've gone over i I sat under your instruction when we've gone over this passage of scripture, but I really can't remember um, the answer to this question. So in the parable in John chapter fifteen in the parable of the vine, um I don't understand um so I'm I'm a person who, who is a stickler for parallels and analogies and stuff, but um, there's part of that and that that doesn't fit. I do remember you saying that um, that being separated um, from the branch for not bearing fruit was not an issue of salvation. But I'm curious what what um, when those branches um, or um, yeah when those branches are cut off and thrown into the fire to be burned. I can't remember what you said that part of the analogy was. Does that
1: make sense? Yes, it does, Joe. I can answer that. Thank you very, very much. You know, this is not a parable, by the way. Jesus is just using a sermon illustration. Um, He starts out, John 15, by saying, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Uh, and, And then he goes on with the remain in me or abide in me and I will abide in you. This isn't about salvation, and and, and because he says, um, if anyone does not abide in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown in the fire and burned. People automatically assume that's hell. Jesus isn't talking about that at all. This is about fruit bearing. Now remember, he's talking to his disciples. John fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, 16, and 17, Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples. And he's telling them that the way to produce fruit for the kingdom, remember earlier he said that that my plan for you is that you would produce abundant fruit. And now he's telling them just before he goes to the cross, he's telling them that the only way to produce fruit is to abide in me. You abide in me, and I will abide in you. And then just to illustrate the truth of there's no possibility of bearing good fruit apart from Christ, he says, if you don't abide in him, well, then that's what it's like. Uh, the, the The branches are just no good. They have no value. And so we pick them up, and we throw them in the fire and burned. And what he's saying is that uh, the Christian life, now remember, at this point in John chapter 15, Judas is still there. And so the reference here, the specific reference is to Judas. He's the branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown in the fire and burned. In other words, he's simply saying that, that the ones who are not in him are not his but again, the, the, the vineyard and the, the, the branches, there's nothing to do with salvation. He's looking at his group of, of followers, and, and basically he's saying, you know, 11 of you are abiding in me, and you're going to be okay. One of you is not abiding in me, and we know that Jesus will later say that he's the son of perdition doomed to destruction from the beginning. It would be better for him to have never been born. So that's what he's talking about there. But don't try to read into these closing messages of Jesus uh, anything to do with salvation, because that's not what he's talking in this particular case. The context is fruit. Does that help you?
3: It does. I thought maybe I thought maybe that it was how um, sin cuts us off from fellowship. Um, maybe that that was part of it. But and then I'm curious to the end of the analogy. Like you can't graft. Burnt <laughs> branches back into the tree. Mm-hmm. So I was—that's confused me for a while. So thank you for clearing it
1: up. Yeah, and this is a very Jewish reference that Jesus is using to his disciples who are there. Um, um, the, the other principle that you you raise uh, is what First John is all about. The book of First John talks about um, the fellowship we have with the Father has to be fellowship in the light. So, if if we're, because Jesus is the light, we have to walk in the light, or we won't produce any fruit at all for the kingdom of God, and our fellowship is broken off. That's why he says, if you confess your sins, he will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. So, the idea is, apart from Jesus, we can never do anything good. Um, so we have to stay close to Jesus all the time. So uh, 1 John uh, is a book that in its entirety is written over this whole concept of true fellowship with Jesus Christ. And that makes the the other point that you were bringing up. Okay?
3: All right. Thank you, Papa.
1: Thank you very much. We love you. God bless you. Love you, too. We're inside... Okay, we're inside four minutes, so probably don't have time for any more phone calls. Appreciate the calls. Here's a question from Daryl. Pastor Ron, I know the Bible says God won't give us more than we can handle, but I feel like that's not true. Daryl, there are times I feel like that's not true, just like you do. But the Bible really says that God's grace is sufficient. When Paul thought he couldn't take it anymore with this thorn in the flesh, the messenger from Satan that buffeted his flesh, he pleaded with God three times to have it removed. God said, nope, my grace is sufficient for you. And I think we sometimes, Daryl, feel like we can't handle something. But the reason we can't handle it is because we're trying to do it on our own. Now I want to say this as clearly as I can because I don't want to be misunderstood here. Everything that happens to you in your life Daryl, and the same thing is true for me and for every believer. every difficult thing that happens is too much to handle unless we're with Jesus unless we're letting him carry our burdens. So the Bible says God won't test us beyond what we can bear. First Corinthians 10:13 translation some translations say use the word temptations. The words are interchangeable and the principle works both ways. God is faithful. He will not let us be tested or tempted beyond what we can bear. We have to decide by faith whether we believe that or not. So when you're going through something that's more than you can handle, you need to ask the Lord, take it from me. That's when we have to be mindful that the enemy's always around and he's going to try to destroy us if we try to carry our own burdens he's going to be there and he's going to pounce on us so we have to remember jesus i trust you i'm yours you love me and so while i'm worried about these things and while i'm afraid of these things i choose to believe that you're here with me and you've got all this covered now that's not just christian ease, Daryl. That's how we understand that he has to do the carrying of these burdens for us. Again, 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation, no test has seized you except that which is common to man. By inference, whatever you're going through, somebody else has already gone through and come out the other side uh, in victory over. And then the next words, it says, and God is faithful. It doesn't say that Daryl is faithful. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. I've had a couple of things in our 22 and a half years here as, a, as pastor of Calvary Chapel San Antonio where I cried out to God said, this is more than I can handle. And basically God scolded me. I did it in love, but he did it. He said, I need you now. with ministry issues with real tragedies. I need you now. And he told me to do my job. And then I, I just I remembered I, I can't do this on my own, Lord, so I need your strength, I need your spirit. Guess what? We lived through it. It was hard, but we lived through it. Run to Jesus when you feel like you have more than you can handle. Appreciate the call today. We're well, to tomorrow, Raw Reese might be on the program tomorrow instead of Thursday. We don't know yet. He's just gotten into town. So we'll let you know tomorrow. Tune in and be surprised. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing.
0: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.